Chapter 6 of First Lensman by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. First Lensman, Chapter 6 The Ambassador's Ball, one of the most ultra ultra functions of the year, was well underway. It was not that everyone who was anyone was there, but everyone who was there was, in one way or another, very emphatically someone. Thus there were affairs at which there were more young and beautiful women, and more young and handsome men, but none exhibiting newer or more expensive gowns, more ribbons and decorations, more or costlier or more refined jewelry, or a larger acreage of powdered and perfumed epidermis. And even so the younger set was well enough represented. Since pioneering appeals more to youth than to age, the men representing the colonies were young, and their wives, together with the daughters and the second, or third, or fourth, or occasionally the fifth, wives of the human personages practically balanced the account. Nor was the throng entirely human. The time had not yet come, of course, when warm-blooded, oxygen-breathing monstrosities from hundreds of other solar systems would vie in numbers with the humanity present. There were, however, a few Martians on the floor, wearing their light robes to convention and dancing with meticulously mathematical precision. A few Venerians, who did not dance, sat in state or waddled importantly about. Many worlds of the Solarian system, and not a few other systems, were represented. One couple stood out, even against that opulent and magnificent background. Eyes followed them wherever they went. The girl was tall, trim, supple, built like a symphony. Her Calliston Vexto silk gown of the newest and most violent shade of radioactive green was phosphorescently luminous, fluorescent, gleaming and glowing. Its hem swept the floor, but above the waist it vanished mysteriously except for wisps which clung to strategic areas here and there with no support, apparently except the personal magnetism of the wearer. She, almost alone of all the women there, wore no flowers. Her only jewelry was a rosette of huge, perfectly matched emeralds, perched precariously upon her bare left shoulder. Her hair, unlike the other women's flawless coiffures, was a flamboyant, artistically disarranged, red-bronze-auburn mop. Her soft and dewy eyes, Virgilia Sams could control her eyes as perfectly as she could her highly educated hands, were at the moment gold-flecked, tawny wells of girlish innocence and trust. "'But I can't give you this next dance, too, Herkimer. Honestly, I can't,' she pleaded, snuggling just a trifle closer into the embrace of the young man who was just as much man physically as she was woman. "'I just love to, really,' but I just simply can't, and you know why, too. You've got some duty dances, of course. Some. I've got a list as long as from here to there. Senator Morgan first, of course, then Mr. Isaacson, then I set one out with Mr. Osman. I can't stand Venerians. They're so slimy and fat and repulsive. And that leathery horned toad from Mars and that Jovian hippopotamus— she went down the list, and as she named or characterized each entity, another finger of her left hand pressed down upon the back of her partner's right, to emphasize the count of her social obligations. 
but those talented fingers were doing more, far, far more, than that. Herkimer Herkimer III, although no little of a Don Juan, was a highly polished, smoothly finished, thoroughly seasoned diplomat. As such, his eyes and his other features, particularly his eyes, had been schooled for years to reveal no trace of whatever might be going on inside his brain. If he had entertained any suspicion of the beautiful girl in his arms, if anyone had suggested that she was trying her best to pump him, he would have smiled the sort of smile which only the top-drawer diplomat can achieve. He was not suspicious of Virgilia Sams. However, simply because she was Virgil Sams' daughter, he took an extra bit of pain to betray no undue interest in any one of the names she recited. And besides, she was not looking at his eyes, nor even at his face. Her glance, demurely downcast, was all too rarely raised above the level of his chin. There were some things, however, that Herkimer Herkimer III did not know. That Virgilia Sams was the most accomplished muscle-reader of her times, that she was so close to him, not because of his manly charm, but because only in that position could she do her prodigious best. That she could work with her eyes alone, but in emergencies, when fullest possible results were imperative, she had to use her exquisitely sensitive fingers and her exquisitely tactile skin. That she had studied intensively and had tabulated the reactions of each of the entities on her list. That she was now, with his help, fitting those reactions into a pattern. And finally, that that pattern was beginning to assume the grim shape of murder. And Virgilia Sams, working now for something far more urgent and vastly more important than a figmental galactic patrol, hoped desperately that this Herkimer was not a muscle reader too, for she knew that she was revealing her secrets even more completely than was he. In fact, if things got much worse, he could not help but feel the pounding of her heart. But she could explain that easily enough by a few appropriate wiggles. No, he wasn't a reader, definitely not. He wasn't watching the right places. He was looking where that gown had been designed to make him look, and nowhere else. And no tell-tale muscles lay beneath any part of either of his hands. As her eyes and her fingers and her lovely torso sent more and more information to her keen brain, Jill grew more and more anxious. She was sure that murder was intended. But who was to be the victim? Her father? Probably. Pops Kinnison? Possibly. Somebody else? Barely possibly. And when? And where? And how? She didn't know. And she would have to be sure. Mentioning names hadn't been enough, but a personal appearance. Why didn't Dad show up? Or did she wish he wouldn't come at all? Virgil Sams entered the ballroom. And Dad told me, Herkimer, she cooed sweetly, gazing up into his eyes for the first time in over a minute, that I must dance with every one of them. So, you see, oh, there he is now, over there. I've been wondering where he's been keeping himself. She nodded toward the entrance and prattled on artlessly. He's almost never late, you know, and I've... He looked, and as his eyes met those of the first lensman, Jill learned three of the facts she needed so badly to know. Her father, here, soon. She never knew how she managed to keep herself under control, 
but some way and just barely she did. Although nothing showed, she was seething inwardly, wrought up as she had never before been. What could she do? She knew, but she did not have a scrap or an iota of visible or tangible evidence, and if she made one single slip, however slight, the consequences could be immediate and disastrous. After this dance might be too late. She could make an excuse to leave the floor, but that would look very bad later, and none of them would lens her, she knew, while she was with Herkimer. Damn such chivalry! She could take the chance of waving at her father, since she hadn't seen him for so long. No, the smallest risk would be with Mace. He looked at her every chance he got, and she'd make him use his lens. Northrop looked at her and over Herkimer's shoulder, for one fleeting instant, she allowed her face to reveal the terrified appeal she so keenly felt. "'Want me, Jill?' His lensed thought touched only the outer fringes of her mind. Full rapport is more intimate than a kiss. No one except her father had ever really put a lens on Virgilia Sams. Nevertheless. "'Want you! I never wanted anybody so much in my life! Come in, Mace, quick!' please. Diffidently enough he came, but at the first inkling of the girl's news all thought of diffidence or of privacy vanished. "'Jack! Spud! Mr. Kinnison! Mr. Sams!' he lensed sharp, imperative, almost frantic thoughts. "'Listen in!' "'Steady, Mace. I'll take over,' came Roderick Kinnison's deeper, quieter mental voice. First, the matter of guns.' Anybody except me wearing a pistol? You are, Spud? Yes, sir. You would be. But you and Mace, Jack? We've got our Lewistons. You would have. Blasters, my sometimes not-quite-so-bright son, are fine weapons indeed for certain kinds of work. In emergencies it is, of course, permissible to kill a few dozen innocent bystanders. In such a crowd as this, though, it is much better technique to kill only the one you are aiming at. So skip out to my car, you two, right now, and change, and make it fast. Everyone knew that Roderick Kinnison's car was at all times an arsenal on wheels. Wish you were in uniform too, Verge, but it can't be helped now. Work your way, slowly, around to the northwest corner. Spud, do the same. It's impossible, starkly unthinkable and I'm not sure of anything, really. Sam's and his daughter began simultaneously to protest. Virgil, you talk like a man with a paper nose. Keep still until after you've used your brain. And I'm sure enough of what you know, Jill, to take plenty of steps. You can relax now. Take it easy. We're covering Virgil, and I called up support in force. You can relax a little, I see. Good. I'm not trying to hide from anybody that the next few minutes may be critical. Are you pretty sure, Jill, that Herkimer is a key man? Pretty sure, Pops. How much better she felt, now that the lensmen were on guard. In this one case, at least. Good. Then let him talk you into giving him every dance, right straight through until something breaks. Watch him. He must know the signal and who is going to operate and if you can give us a fraction of a second of warning, it will help no end. Can do? I'll say I can, and I would love to, 
the big, slimy, stinking skinker. As transliterated into words, the girl's thought may seem a trifle confused, but Kinnison knew exactly what she meant. One more thing, Jill, a detail. The boys are coming back in and are working their partners over this way. See if Herkimer notices that they have changed their holsters. No, he didn't notice, Jill reported after a moment. But I don't notice any difference either, and I'm looking for it. Nevertheless, it's there, and the difference between a Mark 17 and a Mark 5 is something more than that between Tweedledum and Tweedledee, Kinnison returned dryly. However, it may not be as obvious to non-military personnel as it is to us. That's far enough, boys. Don't get too close. Now, Verge, keep solidly on rapport with Jill on one side and with us on the other, so that she won't have to give herself and the show away by yelling and pointing and— But this is preposterous! Sam stormed. Preposterous hell! Roderick Kinnison's thought was still coldly level. Only the fact that he was beginning to use non-ballroom language revealed any sign of the strain he was under. Stop being so goddamn heroic and start using your brain. You turned down fifty billion credits. Why do you suppose they offered that much when they can get anybody killed for a hundred? And what would they do about it? But they couldn't get away with it, Rod. At an ambassador's ball? They couldn't, possibly. Formerly, no. That was my first thought, too. But it was you who pointed out to me, not so long ago, that the techniques of crime have changed of late. In the new light, the swankier the brawl, the greater the confusion, and the better the chance of getting away clean. Comb that out of your whiskers, you red-headed mule. Well, there might be something in it, after all. Sam's thought showed apprehension at last. You know damn well there is. But you boys— Jack and Mace especially. Loosen up. You can't do good shooting while you're strung up like a couple of cocoons. Do something. Talk to your partners, or think it Jill. That won't be hard, sir. Mason Northrup grinned feebly. And that reminds me of something, Jill. Mentor certainly bracketed the target when he, or she, or it maybe, said that you would never need a lens. Huh? Jill demanded inelegantly. I don't see the connection, if any. No? Everybody else does, I'll bet. How about it? The other lensmen, even Sam's, agreed enthusiastically. Well, do you think that any of those characters, particularly Herkimer Herkimer Third, would let a harness bull in harness, even such a beautiful one as you, get close enough to him to do such a Davy the Dip act on his mind? Oh, I never thought of that. But it's right— and I'm glad. But, Pops, you said something about support in force. Have you any idea how long it will be? I hope I can hold out, with you all supporting me, but— You can, Jill, two or three minutes more at most. Support? In force? What do you mean? Sam snapped. Just that. The whole damned army, Kinnison replied. I sent two-star Commodore Alexander Clayton a thought that lifted him right out of his chair. Everything he's got, at full emergency blast. Armor. Mark 84s. Six-by-six extra heavies. A 90-60 for an ambulance. Full escort, upstairs and down. Wayfriskers, copters, cruisers, and big stuff. In short, the works. I would have run with you before this if I dared, 
but the minute the relief party shows up, we do a flit. If you dared? Jill asked, shaken by the thought. Exactly, my dear. I don't dare. If they start anything, we'll do our damnedest, but I'm praying they won't. But Kinnison's prayers, if he made any, were ignored. Jill heard a sharp but very usual and insignificant sound. Someone had dropped a pencil. She felt an inconspicuous muscle twitch slightly. She saw the almost imperceptible tensing of a neck muscle which would have turned Herkimer's head in a certain direction if it had been allowed to act. Her eyes flashed along that line, searched busily for milliseconds. A man was reaching unobtrusively, as though for a handkerchief. But men at ambassadors' balls do not carry blue handkerchiefs, nor does any fabric, however dyed, resemble at all closely the blued steel of an automatic pistol. Jill would have screamed then and pointed, but she had time to do neither. Through her rapport with her father, the lensman saw everything that she saw, in the instant of her seeing it. Hence five shots blasted out, practically as one, before the girl could scream or point or even move. She did scream then, but since dozens of other women were screaming too, it made no difference then. Conway Costigan, trigger-nerved space-hound that he was, and with years of gun-fighting and of hand-to-hand brawling in his log, shot first, even before the gunman did. It was Costigan's blinding speed that saved Virgil Sam's life that day, for the would-be assassin was dying with a heavy slug crashing through his brain before he finished pulling the trigger. The dying hand twitched upward. The bullet intended for Sam's heart went high, through the fleshy part of the shoulder. Roderick Kinnison, because of his age and his son and Northrop, because of their inexperience, were a few milliseconds slow. They, however, were aiming for the body, not for the head, and any of those three resulting wounds would have been satisfactorily fatal. The man went down and stayed down. Sam staggered, but did not go down until the elder Kinnison, as gently as was consistent with the maximum of speed, threw him down. "'Stand back! Get back! Give him air!' men began to shout, the while pressing closer themselves. "'You men, stand back! Some of you go get a stretcher! You women, come here!' Kinnison's heavy, parade-ground voice smashed down all lesser noises. "'Is there a doctor here?' There was, and after being frisked for weapons, he went busily to work. "'Joy, Betty, Jill, Cleo,' Kinnison called his own wife and their daughter, Virgilia Sams and Mrs. Costigan. "'You four first. Now you, and you, and you, and you.' He went on, pointing out large, heavy women wearing extremely extreme gowns. "'Stand here, right over him. Cover him up, so that nobody else can get a shot at him. You other women, stand behind and between these.' Closer yet. Fill those spaces up solid. There. Jack, stand there. Mace, there. Costigan, the other end. I'll take this one. Now, everybody listen. I know damn well that none of you women are wearing guns above the waist, and you've all got long skirts. Thank God for ball gowns. Now, fellows, if any one of these women makes a move to lift her skirt, blow her brains out, right then, without waiting to ask questions. Sir, I protest— "'This is outrageous!' one of the dowagers exclaimed. "'Madam, I agree with you fully. It is.' Kinnison smiled as genuinely as he could under the circumstances. "'It is, however, necessary. I will apologize to all you ladies, and to you, doctor, 
in writing, if you like, after we have Virgil Sams aboard the Chicago. But until then, I would not trust my own grandmother." The doctor looked up. "'The Chicago? This wound does not appear to be a very serious one, but this man is going to a hospital at once. Ah, the stretcher. So, please, easy. There, that is excellent. Call an ambulance, please, immediately.' I did, long ago. But no hospital, doctor. All those windows, open to the public, or the whole place bombed? By no means. I'm taking no chances whatever." "'Except with your own life,' Jill put in sharply, looking up from her place at her father's side. Assured that the first lensman was in no danger of dying, she had begun to take interest in other things. "'You are important, too, you know, and you're standing right out there in the open. Get another stretcher, lie down on it, and we'll guard you, too. And don't be too stiff-necked to take your own advice.' she flared as he hesitated. "'I'm not, if it were necessary, but it isn't. If they had killed him, yes, I'd probably be next in line. But since he got only a scratch, there'd be no point at all in killing even a good number two. "'A scratch!' Jill fairly seethed. "'Do you call that horrible wound a scratch?' "'Huh? Why, certainly. That's all it is, thanks to you.' He returned, in honest and complete surprise. No bone shattered, no main arteries cut, missed the lung. He'll be as good as new in a couple of weeks. And now, he went on aloud, if you ladies will please pick up this stretcher, we will move en masse and slowly toward the door. The women, no longer indignant but apparently enjoying the sensation of being the center of interest, complied with the request. Now, boys, Kinnison lensed a thought. Did any of you, Costigan, see any signs of a concerted rush, such as there would have been to get the killer away if we hadn't interfered? No, sir, came Costigan's brisk reply. None within sight of me. Jack and Mace, I don't suppose you looked. They hadn't, had not thought of it in time. You'll learn. It takes a few things like this to make it automatic. But I couldn't see any either, so I'm fairly certain there wasn't any. Smart operators, quick on the uptake. "'I'd better get at this, sir, don't you think, and let Operation Boscone go for a while?' Costigan asked. "'I don't think so,' Kinnison frowned in thought. "'This operation was planned, son, by people with brains. Any clues you could find now would undoubtedly be plants. No, we'll let the regulars look. We'll stick to our own.' Sirens wailed and screamed outside. Kinnon sent out an exploring thought. "'Alex?' "'Yes.' Where do you want this ninety-sixty with the doctors and nurses? It's too wide for the gates. Go through the wall, across the lawn, right up to the door, and never mind the frippery they've got all over the place. Have your adjutant tell them to bill us for damage. Sam's is shot in the shoulder. Not too serious, but I'm taking him to the hill where I know he'll be safe. What have you got on top of the umbrella? The Boise or the Chicago? I haven't had time to look up yet. Both. Good man. Jack Kinnison started at the monstrous tank, which was smashing statues, fountains, and ornamental trees flat into the earth as it moved ponderously across the grounds and licked his lips. He looked at the companies of soldiers frisking the route, the grounds, and the crowd, higher up at the hovering helicopters, still higher at the eight light cruisers so evidently and so viciously ready to blast, higher still at the long streamers of fire, 
which he now knew marked the locations of the two most powerful engines of destruction ever built by man, and his face turned slowly white. "'Good Lord, Dad!' he swallowed twice. "'I had no idea. But they might at that.' "'Not might, son. They damned well would, if they could get here soon enough with heavy enough stuff.' The elder Kinnison's jaw muscles did not loosen. His darting eyes did not relax their vigilance for a fraction of a second as he lensed the thought. "'You boys can't be expected to know it all, but right now you're learning fast. Get this. Paste it in your iron hats. Virgil Sam's life is the most important thing in this whole damned universe. If they had got him then, it would not, strictly speaking, have been my fault. But if they get him now, it will be.' The land cruiser crunched to a stop against the very entrance, and a white-clad man leapt out. "'Let me look at him, please.' "'Not yet,' Kinnison denied sharply. "'Not until he's got four inches of solid steel between him and whoever wants to finish the job they started. Get your men around him and get him aboard, fast.' Sam's, protected at every point at every instant, was lifted into the maw of the ninety-sixty, and as the massive door clanged shut, Kinnison heaved a tremendous sigh of relief. The cavalcade moved away. "'Coming with us, Rod?' Commodore Clayton shouted. "'Yes, but got a couple of minutes' work here yet. Have a staff car wait for me, and I'll join you.' He turned to the three young lensmen and the girl. "'This fouls up our plans a little, but not too much, I hope. No change in Matisse or Boscone. You and Costigan, Jill, can go ahead as planned. Northrop, you'll have to brief Jill on Zwilnick and find out what she knows. Virgil was going to do it tonight, after the brawl here, but you know as much about it now as any of us. Check with Knobos, Dalton, and Fletcher. While Virgil is laid up, you and Jack may have to work on both Zabriska and Zwilnick. He'll lend you. Get the dope, then do as you think best. Get going. He strode away toward the waiting staff car. Boscone? Zwilnick? Jill demanded. What gives? What are they, Jack? We don't know yet. Maybe we're going to name a couple of planets. Piffle, she scoffed. Can you talk sense, Mace? What's Boscone? A simple, distinctive, pronounceable coined word. Suggested, I believe, by Dr. Bergenholm, he began. You know what I mean, you... She broke in, but was silenced by a sharply lensed thought from Jack. His touch was very light, barely sufficient to make conversation possible, but even so she flinched. "'Use your brain, Jill. You aren't thinking a lick. Not that you can be blamed for it. Stop talking. There may be lip-readers or high-powered listeners around. This feels funny, doesn't it?' He twitched mentally and went on. "'You already know what Operation Matisse is, since it's your own dish, politics.' Operation Zwilnik is drugs, vice, and so on. Operation Boscone is pirates. Spud is running that. Operation Zabriska is Mace and me checking some peculiar disturbances in the sub-ether. Come in, Mace, and do your stuff. I'll see you later aboard. Clear ether, Jill. Young Kinnison vanished from the fringes of her mind, and Northrop appeared. And what a difference! His mind touched hers as gingerly as Jack's had done as skittishly, as instantaneously ready to bolt away from anything in the least degree private. However, Jack's mind had rubbed hers the wrong way, right from the start, and Mace's didn't. 
Now, about this Operation Zwilnik, Jill began. Something else first. I couldn't help noticing, back there, that you and Jack, well, not out of phase exactly, or really out of sync, but sort of, well, as though... Hunting? she suggested. Not exactly. Forcing might be better, like holding a tight beam together when it wants to fall apart. So you noticed it yourself? Of course, but I thought Jack and I were the only ones who did. Like scratching a blackboard with your fingernails. You can do it, but you're awfully glad to stop. And I like Jack, too, darn it, at a distance. And you and I fit like precisely tuned circuits. Jack really meant it, then, when he said that you, that is, he, I didn't quite believe it until now, but if, you know, of course, what you've already done to me. Jill's block went on, full strength. She arched her eyebrows and spoke aloud. Why, I haven't the faintest idea. Of course not. That's why you're using voice. I found out, too, that I can't lie with my mind. I feel like a heel and a louse with so much job ahead, but you've simply got to tell me something. Then, whatever you say, I'll hit the job with everything I've got. Do I get heaved out between planets without a spacesuit, or not? I don't think so. Jill blushed vividly, but her voice was steady. You would rate a spacesuit, and enough oxygen to reach another plan, another goal, and now we'd better get to work, don't you think? Yes, thanks, Jill, a million. I know as well as you do that I was talking out of turn, and how much, but I had to know. He breathed deep. And that's all I ask, for now. Cut your screens. She lowered her mental barriers, finding it surprisingly easy to do so in this case, let them down almost as far as she was in the habit of doing with her father. He explained in flashing thoughts everything he knew of the four operations, concluding, "'I'm not assigned to Zabriska permanently. I'll probably work with you on Matisse after your father gets back into circulation. I'm to act more as a liaison man. Neither Knobos nor Dalnalton knows you well enough to lend you, right?' "'Yes. I've met Mr. Knobos only once, and have never even seen Dr. Dalnalton.' "'Ready to visit them via lens?' Yes, go ahead. The two lensmen came in. They came into his mind, not hers. Nevertheless, their thoughts, superimposed upon Northrop's, came to the girl as clearly as though all four were speaking to each other face to face. What a weird sensation! Jill exclaimed. Why, I never imagined anything like it! We are sorry to trouble you, Miss Sams. Jill was surprised anew. The silent voice deep within her mind was of characteristically Martian timber, but instead of the harshly guttural consonants and the hissing sibilance of any Martian's best efforts at English, pronunciation and enunciation were flawless. "'Oh, I didn't mean that. It's no trouble at all, really. I just haven't got used to this telepathy yet.' "'None of us has, to any noticeable degree.' but the reason for this call is to ask you if you have anything new, however slight, to add to our very small knowledge of Zwilnik. Very little, I'm afraid, and that little is mostly guesses, deductions, and jumpings at conclusions. Father told you about the way I work, I suppose. 
Yes, exact data is not to be expected. Hints, suggestions, possible leads will be of inestimable value. Well, I met a very short, very fat Venerian named Osman at a party at the European Embassy. Do either of you know him? I know of him, Dalnalton replied. A highly reputable merchant, with such large interest on Tullus that he has to spend most of his time here. He is not in any one of our books, although there is nothing at all surprising in that fact. Go on, please, Miss Sams. He didn't come to the party with Senator Morgan, but he came to some kind of an agreement with him that night, and I am pretty sure that it was about Thionite. That's the only new item I have. Thionite! The three lensmen were equally surprised. Yes, Thionite, definitely. How sure are you of this, Miss Sams? Konobos asked, in deadly earnest. I am not sure that this particular agreement was about Thionite, no, but the probability is roughly nine-tenths. I am sure, however, that both Senator Morgan and Osman know a lot about Thionite that they want to hide. Both gave very high positive reactions, well beyond the six-sigma point of virtual certainty. There was a pause, broken by the Martian, but not by a thought directed at any one of the three. Sid, he called, and even Jill could feel the lens thought speed. Yes, Knobos, Fletcher. That hauling you made, out in the asteroids. Heroin, Haydive, and Ladolian, wasn't it? No thionite involved anywhere? No thionite. However, you must remember that part of the gang got away so all I can say positively is that we didn't see or hear about any thionite. There was some gossip, of course, but you know there always is. Of course. Thanks, Sid. Jill could feel the brilliant Martian's metal gears whirl and click. Then he went into such a flashing exchange of thought with the Venerian that the girl lost track in seconds. One more question, Miss Sams, Dal Nalton asked. Have you detected any indications that there may be some connection between either Osman or Morgan and any official or executive of interstellar spaceways? Spaceways? Isaacson? Jill caught her breath. Why? Nobody even thought of such a thing. At least, nobody ever mentioned it to me. I never thought of making any such tests. The possibility occurred to me only a moment ago— at your mention of Thionite. The connection, if any exists, will be exceedingly difficult to trace. But, since most, if not all, of the parties involved will probably be included in your Operation Matisse, and since a finding, either positive or negative, will be tremendously significant, we feel emboldened to ask you to keep this point in mind. Why, of course I will. I'll be very glad to— we thank you for your courtesy and your help. One or both of us will get in touch with you from time to time, now that we know the pattern of your personality. May immortal Grolassen speed the healing of your father's wound. End of chapter 6